Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Trade unions have been out of fashion in the past couple of decades. In 1985, 45% of workers were protected by collective agreements. In 2016, this number fell to 32%. In the United States, 27 states have implemented right to work, meaning that union members can opt out of paying fees. This has significantly eroded trade union power in these states, and workers are paying the price now. While economies have more or less gone back to pre-crisis levels and unemployment is spectacularly low, wages remain stuck. So are we witnessing trade union revivalism now? I'm Clara Young, and I'm in the studio with Paul Nowak who is the Deputy General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress in the UK. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Clara. You OK? I spoke about the trade union situation in the US. What's the situation in the UK? Well, in the UK, uh, around about a quarter of the workforce are in trade unions. And actually, our membership has held relatively steady over the last decade or, or, or so. But that's down from a high. I mean, if you th- go back to the end of the 1970s, around about 12.5 million people were in trade unions. Now it's just 6 million. So uh, there's still lots of work that we need to do to get out and to organise younger workers in particular, but also the private service sector and those parts of the economy where unions traditionally haven't been well established. In the employment outlook, which was recently released, the OECD calls for renewed support mm-hmm. of collective bargaining for workers. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, unions have always been good for workers, uh, but I think what we're seeing now is policymakers realising that unions and collective bargaining are also good for our labour markets and economies as well. What we've seen over the last four decades is that the deregulation of our labour markets, the weakening of unions, and that's really an impact on the ability of workers to get a fair share. Uh, so even where we've seen productivity gains, workers not seeing that reflected in their wages and their living standards. And I think increasingly now policymakers are realising that strong unions and collective bargaining are about putting money back into the pockets of working people, making sure our economies are sustainable, and that we avoid some of the problems that we saw prior to the financial crash where now levels of household debt spiralled because people just weren't making enough to make ends In terms of national income, workers' wages are shrinking compared to the proportion going to owners of capital, i.e. business owners. Absolutely, and I think that's directly attributable to the relative decline of unions and collective bargaining. That imbalance of power in the workplace has played out in the big macro economic figures. So, I mean, you referred to it right at the start. We've got this real paradox. Record levels of employment in many OECD countries, including the UK. But at the same time, I mean, people seeing their their real income stagnating. In the UK, we've had a lost decade of wage growth. Mm -hmm. Wages still below in real terms where they were before the financial crash. And we've seen an explosion in insecure working. So one in nine people now working on a casual contract, on a zero-hours contract through an employment agency. That's not good for individuals, but it's not good for our economies more broadly either. And the people who do this kind of work, zero-hours contract, platform workers... Do they join unions? Are there unions for them? There are unions for them. I mean, we've still got a lot more to make being a union member the norm in those jobs, but I'll give you a couple of practical examples in the UK. Uh, In Uber, we had uh, drivers joining the GMB. One of our unions successfully Mm -hmm. pursued a legal case to prove that they were workers and therefore entitled to things like... That was a landmark uh, case. ...holiday Mm -hmm. pay. Yeah, we've had uh, unions organising self-employed couriers. And remember, unions have always organised gig economy workers. 
mean, the very expression gig economy comes from people like musicians and, and oh, artists and uh-huh. actors, and we've got strong unions for those uh, self-employed professionals as well. So there's still much more for unions to do, but I think we're beginning to see unions making real inroads into organising those platform and gig economy right. uh, workers. And you know, it's crucial for us. I mean, it, I think it's about reimagining what trade unionism and collective bargaining means in the 21st century. So if the algorithm that Uber uses determines the pay of drivers, the income of drivers, then we should have some influence over how that algorithm is shaped and applied and a little bit more transparency than we've got now. Are you making any inroad in that? It's been difficult. Uh, Some companies, I think, have taken a more progressive approach. If I think about the UK, there's a company called Hermes, just signed an agreement with one of our unions covering self-employed delivery drivers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're still Mm self-employed, but the agreement means that they get things like holiday pay, they get cover if they're ill at work. That's important because my view is it doesn't matter whether you're self-employed, whether you're working on a short-term contract, a casual contract, you have basic rights at work and employees should respect those and support those. But they still pay for their own benefits though, right? In that case, actually, they can opt into something called self-employed plus, which is different and the employer effectively picks up those costs. Okay, uh, But there is a broader set of issues here about the way our taxation systems work, yes. the way that we regulate the labour market, because I think things like bogus and false forms of self-employment are bad for workers, but they mm-hmm. also have an impact on the tax take for our national treasuries as Can well. Can you go into bogus self-employment just for people who might not yeah, be familiar I mean, with th- that? Th- this is something that's always been a feature, certainly of the UK's labour market, and I think other OECD labour markets, but is growing. So, for example... In construction in the UK, lots of people are so-called self-employed, but the reality is they're only working for one employer. Their pay terms and conditions are determined by that employer. Right. Uh, but for tax purposes and also to avoid their employment obligations, the employer defines them as self-employed. And so that means that, for example, when somebody is ill, the employer doesn't pay sick pay. They say, well, you need to look after yourself. That's up to you. You're self-employed. Now, we've successfully challenged some of those cases in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the courts. employment tribunals? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But I think what we need is government to take, send firm signals in the UK, but more broadly as well, that the presumption should be that people are employed, are workers, unless an employee can demonstrably prove that they're not. And at the moment, far too many people are losing out. And this has a real impact on people's security of employment and uh, incomes as well. So the ultimate goal is legislation rather than just relying on tribunal decisions. Yeah, I I mean, I think this is going to require a package right across the piece, a regulation that is fit for purpose in the 21st century that closes some of these loopholes that employers have used to transfer risk from the employer to the employee. It's going to need strong unions and collective bargaining because it's one thing having employment rights you've got to be able to enforce those employment rights as well and it does require you know good companies and organizations to step up to the plate and think about the models of employment that they use now if i think about something like parcel deliveries there are good companies and there are bad companies and we need to be supporting and incentivizing that those who are doing the right thing by their staff talking about parcel delivery um, something that I wanted to ask you about was about evolving technologies as something to keep an eye on because we're hearing now about the use of monitoring devices on people who work in parcel delivery to make sure they're working effectively this has implications for well-being right it has massive implications for well-being and it's not just those who deliver our parcels it's people who work in warehouses who are wearing GPS trackers it's people in call centers who are being monitored about the number of calls that they take um, two-thirds of the British public that we've surveyed say they have concerns about their employer potentially using technology to discriminate against them mm-hmm. uh, in work and I think again there has to be a lot more transparency agreements in place in companies about how that 
data is used, what it can be used for, right. and crucially, establishing the principle that there should always be a human factor. We're seeing now in, for example, many distribution centres, you get a disciplinary on your record if the app senses that you've been late delivering an item three times. Well, there needs to be some human agency there. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a technological fatalist. Mm-hmm. There's lots of really good things about technology and lots of potential benefits that accrue from it. Uh, but we do have to be concerned about how that monitoring surveillance is played out at work and making sure that people have some influence over their working lives. Has there been any agreements made, maybe even just within companies, between the employees and management about particularly the subject of monitoring devices to make it less damaging? Yeah, and I think that there are lots of examples we can draw from our recent history. When I started work, I worked in a call centre. I worked for an employment agency, but we had a union and we had very clear processes and procedures in place for things like the numbers of calls you were expected to take, what happened if you needed to take time away. And we've always mediated technology. The problem is that in lots of workplaces now, there is no union voice, there is no union presence, particularly in sort of new and emerging parts of the economy. So, you know, big challenge to unions about how we give people in those sectors a voice, younger workers in particular. But as I say, the TUC, we celebrated last year our 150th anniversary, and part of our job has always been not just reacting to the changing world of work, it's been shaping the mm-hmm. world of work. And that means shaping the way that these new technologies are, are applied, whether it's the, the introduction of the steam engine or whether it's microcomputers or now it's the internet and, and wearable technology. And robots. Uh, and robots absolutely too robots, now. Yeah, yeah. And I think that'll be my last question because that is something that's really weighing on everybody's minds. And we're starting to see the results now that the um, use of automation is tunneled mm-hmm. into medium-skilled jobs like administrative duties and plant operators. Yeah. What's your take on this? What should be done? Well, well again, I, I mean, this this is, I mean, the cost of automation have come down incredibly. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a robot in a car assembly plant or it's bots that crawl in over software, this stuff is a lot cheaper, a lot more prevalent than it used to be. Again, I mean, I've seen firsthand how unions and employers work on these issues. So I took a group of Japanese trade unionists around about a year and a half ago around a UK car plant, employing more people than ever before and also employing and using more robots than ever before. And they had a clear agreement in place about what happens when a process gets automated, what that means for the people working on that process. Obviously, job security, but income security guarantees of redeployment and reskilling. I think we need to do that at a plant level, a company mm-hmm. level. But we also need to be thinking this stuff through at a sectoral level and a national level as well. So in the UK, we've talked about the need to establish a future of work commission. And uh, this is something that happened in Germany with their Industry 4.0 initiative. The OECD and I know the ILO have also been calling on countries to really map out national plans for how we deal with automation and digital technology. And the crucial thing for me, two things, is one, ensuring a fair transition for people, a just transition as we go into this new technological future. But the second thing is also making sure that working people derive some benefit from it. So if there's going to be a big digital dividend, how do we make sure working people, their families and communities get their fair share of that digital dividend? Because if we don't get this right, there's a real danger that all we do is entrench those existing divides in our society. That's not good for workers, but it's not good for our societies and economy as a whole. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more, please have a look at the OECD's 2019 Employment Outlook. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.